0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, Boy Dan Evans. I'm joined, as usual, by the boy Nathan Kush. What's up, Nathan? Not much, you're yeah. Pretty good, me. And I'm also joined by the boy Kieran Smith. What's up, Kieran? Uh, hello, yeah. Good. The boy we adopted. The boy we adopted, Kieran Smith. Mm, yeah. We're delighted today to be joined by noted academic and writer <laughs> Patrick McGuinness. <laughs> Professor Patrick Professor, McGuinness. Yes. Professor Patrick Please, McGuinness. Come on um, yeah. Host of Take Me Out. Author <laughs> of Throw Me to the Wolves, Other People's Countries. Poetry and radical politics in Fin de Siècle France. I gave it. Well, I gave it a go. Where I was just going to say no, good, poetry politics good. in France. Um, we're delighted to have Patrick with us. Patrick's fresh off a bit of train rage as well, trying to get to get to Heath. So hopefully we can channel that throughout the duration it's of the really podcast. Really psyched <laughs> me up. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. So it's really re- we're really really delighted to have you on Patrick because we've been trying to get we've been sort of talking about this for for a while, but you sort of inconveniently live in North Wales, which is. You know, that's right yeah. <laughs> yeah i know
1: might
2: as well still live
0: in yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right that's
1: right that's how it feels <laughs> certainly in terms of trains
0: yeah so um you're down for you're going to do a, re- a reading of your latest latest novel and um, we will evening. hope uh, and you are and a very interesting uh character because you sort of bridge the literary and political worlds and you know and you're an academic but you also are novels and you've been engaged in political discourse in wales for a while now which is um so we can hopefully cover all cover all the bases what i think is we would be a good place to start. Is Patrick or Pat? Patrick. Patrick. Um, Do you... Can you talk us through when you... Because obviously you're, you're, you know, shockingly not from Wales originally. So... um, I'm doing my best. (laughs) I'm doing my best to remedy (laughs) that. So, but you moved... So you, you moved to Wales and then obviously you got involved in sort of Welsh political... Write in, discourse, a couple of uh, quite famous beefs, which I want to talk about. But talk us through like why you came to Wales, and then what sort of happened once you start, once you came to Wales, and what you that maybe the perspective of an outsider moving in is sure. quite is quite useful.
1: Um, well, it was all basically unpredictable at the time, but in some sense, totally obvious in retrospect. Because, like a lot of people who live in England. I knew nothing about Wales and I had barely met any Welsh people, maybe one or two when I was at school in Bristol. And when I was a junior academic in Oxford, I went to Jesus College, which was my first job, which is traditionally the Welsh College. And for the first time ever, I heard the Welsh language being spoken in the Quad. So I already had this strange sense of a Welsh microclimate. And... One of my colleagues, who was a lecturer in German at the time, was Angharad Price, who is also a writer and who is the person uh, who became my partner and with whom I live in Carnarvon. And I knew so little about Wales that when I first met Angharad, I assumed because she was teaching German and she had an accent that I'd never heard before, that she was in fact from those parts and I asked her which bit of Austria she was from and she said uh <laughs> and, Um anyway, so this is why I'm here.
0: Great. So you not but you still continue to work in, in Oxford.
1: I continue to commute in Oxford, which means I have quite an interesting psychogeographical journey from Welsh speaking Wales to the ultimately gentrified city of Oxford and Interestingly, it's all the stops in between, Chester, Crewe, Birmingham, Banbury, that um, keep me weirdly connected to uh, what you could call Middle England, I guess, which is the bit I get in in the middle uh, of the place where I live and the place where I work.
0: So how long have you been in, in Carnarvon for now?
1: We moved there about... Twelve years ago, okay.
0: you are
3: testing if you qualify. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, he's me. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> like. I'm definitely a covey. <laughs>
0: so I mean, I I, I love Carnarvon. I spent a lot of time up there. It's fantastic place. Um, so when you first moved to Wales, I mean, I know, I mean, because is there a recurring trope within sort of studies of like rurality that people will, te- um, there's conflict in the countryside because people will often move to rural Wales and it won't be what they <laughs> they thought the rural idyll yeah. is meant to be like and so they go they set about immediately trying to tra- transform it and mm-hmm. and sort of drag it into or mold it into what they thought rural Wales would be like so what was it like then when you first like shock of capture shock of moving or into a, because it's a predominantly Welsh-speaking area
1: well I had learned Welsh when I lived in Cardiff because we lived here for six years so both of our children were born here not far from here in the Heath Hospital and um, So I'd learned Welsh and when we moved to Carnarvon for Angharad's work um, I was apprehensive partly because Cardiff was the first city in which I'd really felt at home. Um, I loved living here, we had a house in Canton and I was was very happy here so I didn't quite know what was going to happen. When we moved to a place that was totally new to me in lots of ways and also so practically far away Now I can't imagine any other sort of life, and I'm very glad that I have it and that we have it. In a strange way, Carnarvon reminds me of the town of Bouillon where I grew up and where my mother came from and where my cousins uh, still live and my aunts and uncles still are, which is a small post-industrial town that used to be wealthy, uh, wealthy wealthy-ish from two factories but which, as I was growing up, was becoming more and more post-industrial. My grandfather and my great-grandfather worked in this metal factory. My grandmother was a dressmaker, seamstress, local uh, dressmaker for the bourgeoisie. And that was a great childhood, which I look back on with immense pride and affection. It wasn't... um, it wasn't especially wealthy, but it was it was class conscious. There was a kind of class politics there implicit all the time. The them and us, nous et les patrons, the patrons being the bosses. And um, <clears throat> when I was about nine, my parents, who were then living in Iran, which was a great place to live, incidentally, um, sent me to English boarding school, which is how I became English and why I sound like this. And... Um, when I got to Carnarvon, I saw that there were certain similarities, that is to say, uh, industrial, urban stroke, countryside, small town with a huge amount of history, with its own identity, and which was in its own way extremely welcoming. You know, I'm, I'm extremely happy though. It took me about 15 years to fit in in Oxford. I think in, Oxford, in Carnarvon, I'd fitted in after about two weeks
0: it's, I mean, the story I always tell everyone, um, but when I, because obviously I'm from South Wales, like all my friends, I would say the majority of the people I know have never been north of the M4, one of the big tragedies of Wales that we don't move around in our own country. And I always say that when I, like, I went to Union Aberystwyth, I, I mean, no disrespect to anyone from Aberystwyth, but I really didn't feel part of Aberystwyth. I didn't really get on with the place at all. But when I went up to Carnarvon and Bangor, fully expecting it to be like an entirely rural sort of backwater which is based on if you read Welsh history or whatever that's, because I think that the north is kind of othered but it was just exactly, you know, if you go there it's just like being in a but there's the and you know, the Nantla Valley these are post-industrial yes, areas are. identical Absolutely. to the South Wales Valleys you know, and and I felt exactly the same sort of I just felt people were very welcoming and um, very mm. warm, it was, obviously that's sort of speaking in cliché mm. terms but, you know, but it was, it, I just felt very it felt like a very familiar place to me as well has been quite different. Um, but it's unusual that you've actually, more so than most, people, most Welsh people who've grown up in Wales, have already seen you know the, the different parts of Wales. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, in that context, <clears throat> you say that the north of Wales has been othered. It absolutely has, because it has huge amounts in common with South Wales and the valleys, but it's somehow not allowed to have, because that would lead to the kind of organic national consciousness, which our political leaders specifically don't want us to have. And you can, as you say, walk through places like Canada and Bethesda and so on, and you will see that this is a part of the country that was always connected up to industrialization, to the world, to an earlier version of globalization. But it seems to be in people's interest not to think of it like that.
0: Well, there's, um, I think, Teggy Roberts, one of our big friends were saying um on don't twitter, shame tw- tw- twitter the other day um that you know one of the he 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 heard a prominent economist say back in the day but the, the concept of an north the south wales railway line was well, that would be deemed as a nationalist project so it was sort of vetoed and i certainly it, it certainly did stuff like that doesn't would, would generally not surprise me but i mean i've always it it, it, it because i was certainly guilty of this i thought that it was like this whole other world and then you go up there and you start reading about the Penrand quarry strike, you start reading mm-hmm. about the but not just that, the movement of people between the coal fields, the fact that so many, you know, quarrymen from Bethesda would move move down into the South Wales mining industry yep. and um, and there was there was a lot of um solidarity shown between like the North Wales Miner, Miners Federation and the South Wales Miners Federation, yep. even though obviously the Fed, like the South Wales one, is far better known. But it, it is I would I would urge everyone to go and spend time in <laughs> In North Wales, Because as well as being beautiful, it's just you'll, you start to see, oh, this is, this is really no different from anywhere else.
1: Well, there was also, of course, the um, North Wales to America um, coal, uh, slate mining mm. movement as well, which doesn't fully have its place in Welsh history. Maybe we should inaugurate some kind of exchange system like we used to have when we were growing up, pen friends from other countries, except they would be pen friends from our own country, yeah, from good. different bits of it.
0: I've always wanted a pen pal. It is I'll be your pen pal. <laughs> well, that's what tw- I guess. Mean, I, like I, guess that's what, I guess that's what Twitter <laughs> is, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a union for. It's you know, true though, pen, en- pen enemy, just like just writing <laughs> to someone. That, that's from just as good.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point though. Being in school, learning Welsh, should have cut. You know, a William comprehensive school, and obviously one of the exercises is I'll write. You know, write a letter to a pen friend in the only other part of the world that speaks Welsh, which is of course Patagonia, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole north <laughs> of the country that also does.
0: Speak Welsh as well. Yeah, know, mandatory school trips for everyone, um, and exchange exchanges take the North Wales. Exchanges, and strangers,
1: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. All right. But there, there has always been. I mean, the the thing about Wales, which frustrated me when I came here and still frustrates me, is that there seems to be a refusal to think about the connectedness of things. That is to say. It's so obvious that in infrastructural terms, that is the fact that you can't go from north to south, south to south, south to north, either by car or by train, is a correlative of a sort of mental separation and a national separation and linguistic separation that isn't natural. You know, it's kind of been enforced. You know, these things have practical national um financial capitalist explanations. And you know, this idea that, you know, at its most basic, the the No Roads for Gogs Brigade, which I remember the big debates about about transport when I arrived in Wales. People were simply saying, oh no one makes that journey. It's much more better to invest just in yet another road in South Wales or invest in the Heads of the Valleys road and so on. And as for people coming from Bangor to Carnarvon, those people don't exist. You know, I've had people tell me that. I, I was Anglo-splained Wales by someone when I moved to Cardiff, who was telling me all about the, the different tribal, uh, tensions between the different bits of Wales and the way they didn't speak the same language and when they did, they didn't even speak the same dialect. That, of course, was completely bollocks. Um, and but that mentality, still stays and loads of welsh people basically believe it and by believing in it they are also uh replicating it and passing it on and i think that's terrible
0: and you've had some well you basically started to get into some beefs with some of our prominent uh, intellectuals when you sort of arrived was this how did i mean how did this we will we will talk about this and i'm being sort of chomping at a bit like can't tell <laughs> but i mean how i mean you see you, you struck me as being sort of disappointed In sort of Wales, it seems as if you've got a great love for Wales, but you seem to have a a great amount of disappointment in Wales's sort of political establishment and and sort of intellectual culture. And then you sort of were almost flying the flag as an outsider sort of fighting against it.
1: Yeah, um, I don't think I'm more disappointed in Welsh politics than I am in British or indeed large swathes of European politics. I guess that my what was new to me when I moved to Wales was that as an Anglo-Belgian I never really much cared about where I came from. I had no real sense of having an allegiance that was national or based on any form of identity or even language. I knew in the way that certain Belgians know that they're not French and don't want to be mistaken for French. That was always one of my mother's big beefs. You know, she would, the only time she ever told, insisted on where she came from was where someone, when someone asked her whether she was French and she would say, no, no, absolutely not, I'm Belgium. Um, something about coming to Wales and feeling that our debates, our political debates, our debates about identity kind of paradoxical because on the one hand they're still really really basic they haven't got past first base but on the other hand and as it were in the same movement they've become so hyper sophisticated that nothing ever gets said so you're caught between um, between the basic and the overly sophisticated in ways that I find frustrating Uh, so it's not that I was disappointed it's that I was I was Angry that things were not being. How would I say it? Disappointment suggests that I'm coming from a position of superiority mm. where things disappoint me. That's absolutely yeah. not the not the case. Um, what I felt was when I arrived here and I read up on the debates, I thought, "My God, this, this they're still the same debates from the nineteen sixties, and twenty years on, they're still the same debates from." The early two thousands and the late nineties, um, you can pick up any of those excellent magazines, Planet magazines, Pla- Planet magazine, or you can read Nation Cymru, or you can look at um, New Welsh Review. It's the same debates, the same debates. It's like there's a kind of static um, ground, battleground, on which the same debates are being fought, and that that frustrated me is it the same everywhere else i i don't know i can't really speak anymore for for the belgium that i knew and still go back to from a political sense but um certainly here i feel that we are it's just different people saying the same things
2: hmm. i want, sorry i was going to just maybe ask, i'm one of them you know you talk about the the level of the debate being scaled between either the very basic and the, or the very sophisticated no academic kind of arguments really yes yes that's and whether right. you think the middle <clears throat> ground is where in any ordinary national community you'd have a cultural sphere where some of these tensions might be played out culturally whether that's through media and broadcasting or uh, you know a meaningful literary sphere where these kinds of conversations do happen you know in in a more kind of uh, healthy way
1: yeah <clears throat> I, yeah, I think if we had a, a bigger, and I don't by middle ground, I don't mean middle brown no, no, uh, no. or politically middle of the road, but if there were culturally a set of things that we um, that that we could bank on, our opponents as well as our friends and allies in any debate, having accepted and having read and having thought about, then. I feel we'd be able to do more. Everything seems so fractured. If I if I talk in literary terms now, um, one of the things that gave me huge pleasure and still I consider to be my main contribution, really, to literature, he said pompously, is the edition that I made of Lynette Roberts, the Anglo-Welsh-Argentinian poet. And I've written novels, poems, and I've written academic books and so on, but that's the one thing I've done where I felt that this whole rich chunk of beautiful poetry and, and fascinating liminal ideas was just lying there dormant, neglected. And I felt very privileged to have been the lucky person who was able to bring it into back into circulation, you know, in the form of a uh, collected poems of hers. And a couple of friends of mine in Oxford who um, gave, who put that book on their reading lists for their students to read said, how come it only came out now? And I suppose I thought, well, because it's Wales, you know, because things get forgotten. Um, Another one of the high points, I think, was being asked to write the introduction to the John Ormond book, the John Ormond collected poems that came out. And I suppose I felt that there were so many things here that were still not being properly read, just just in Anglo-Welsh, if that's what you want to call it, Welsh literature in English. Already, that's a tradition which is spiky, dangerous could profoundly upset a sort of um, overwhelming British ideology. And so why is that perhaps the reason that it's still lying there dormant, you know, in archives or on specialized reading lists? And so that, that's one of my frustrations. That's one of my disappointments. And that can be easily rectified. I feel much more optimistic about that particular part of the culture now, Anglo-Welsh literature, Welsh literature in English, being being foregrounded. Um, but that's because small practical steps have been made. That is to say, real world, real life steps, like yeah. getting people yeah. to read them in schools and so mm. on. It's mm. that basic. There's always a material yeah. explanation yeah. for things.
0: The non-emergence of new forms of culture, though, is as significant as... Um, anything else. I mean, it's about, for me, it's always been about power relations. If you look at the national narrative of Wales and why some things are left unsaid or some things are marginalised, these things, as you said, it, it's important. In Wales, there's almost a tendency, well, again, the saying that it's normal and natural and just happened by accident, that in itself is indicative of certain, <laughs> it's it's something that is about power as well. When you had your, you had a, quite a well-publicised uh, beef with about the colonial post-colonial uh, theory debate in Wales, um, I think it was a new Welsh review, I believe. Yes, it new, was new Welsh yes. review. And um, so one of but one of the interesting things for me is um, post-colonial theory is one of those uh, debates, which, as you said, it's on the one level there's there is very sophisticated stuff going on, like Kirsty Beharter, Daniel Williams, yes. And on the other hand the same basic things have been said totally. over and over and over and over again. Part of that is obviously to do with academia's problem and it can't break out of it. So, no. So we write stuff in academia and it just doesn't filter out into the national popular consciousness. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, a lot of my PhD was based on post-colonial theory and it's, but just nothing ever changes. You know, the same, the same types keep being said. But for me, the refusal to move beyond this basic, um, a basic understanding is, is Entirely political and about power relations, and in the your
1: politicians on all sides hmm. want it to stay basic, yeah. it's in their interest.
0: And in your so, you basically, um, I think you so if I get the chronology right, you, um, I can't remember the guy's name who wrote the book, um, on Mc, Dave McKnight wrote a book on post colonial theory, Stephen St-
1: Nice, St- Stephen, Stephen Nice, sorry, oh, yeah, which yeah, was received. It would be yeah. ironic, wouldn't it, uh, if, we, if we forgot yeah. the book but remembered the um, argument, but he,
0: um. <laughs> but it re- received a very hostile reception as just as pretty much everything to do with post theory has done from uh labor the labor support inside of Welsh academia and you sort of jumped in yeah. to that, so talk us through what happened
1: well, what happened um Stephen Knight, who's a, someone I didn't know, wrote a book about whale. About Welsh literature as uh, in a post-colonial context or a colonial context, and um, Di Smith wrote a funny for the first two or three lines, um, but lacerating review in a kind of mock, um, mock Valleys accent about how he, well, it was it was basically a destruction, but it wasn't it wasn't enough to. Just to disagree, what I wanted to do was humiliate the man, the writer, and humiliate the intellectual tradition that fed into it and that might potentially feed out of it. I don't mind lacerating reviews. I've given them and I've received them. But this really was an attempt to strangle a way of looking at things. And it was done with what struck me as a kind of heavy but pseudo-light vicious humour. Which obviously made a lot of people chortle. So I wrote an article, a letter, I think, um, objecting to it. And um, I can't remember what then happened. I think that's right. Then Kirsty
2: Kirsty wrote a response as well, She did.
1: She, she yeah. wrote an intelligent, measured response. <laughs> I just wrote an angry, insulting one. Um, She's yes. Going, Fuck you. Um, <laughs> it was a version of that with more words. <laughs> um, Fuck
3: you. you, you, you. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Um, and then I can't remember how this happened but then Leighton Andrews leapt in um, and you know one of the things about um, one of the things that's worth debating is whether being defended by Leighton Andrews is actually worse than being attacked Um, but uh, then I think I replied to Leighton and what I said was But by then, of course, the thing had got out of hand and poor Kirsty was still trying to, um, she was holding the fort for rigorous intellectual debate. Um, But I pointed out something which is, of course, profoundly true, both in the things that have been said to me in public and private and anonymously, which is this, there is nothing a certain kind of Welsh Labour politician hates more than an outsider who comes to Wales and turns, as they see it, nationalist. Um, That really pisses them off. And I had a lot of that in the early 2000s. So that was the debate. Um, The intellectual substance of my debate, which is uh, of my contribution to that debate, would be the same as I would make now, which is that just because Wales and the Welsh contributed to imperialism and colonialism, doesn't necessarily exclude them from also having been um, colonised in a certain way um, and exploited. You know, tell that to the Irish, you know, it's quite obvious that Ireland was a colony. It's also quite obvious that in terms of money, architecture, civil society, it benefited from the slave trade and from the very colonialism that um, it also had a previous incarnation suffered. And so that annoyed me, the idea that um, the rest of academia, Irish, English, Scottish, had been exploring what colonialism and post-colonialism might mean in intelligent ways, and that Wales somehow wasn't, that you weren't allowed to use it. And if you used that term, you were going to get jumped on by um, the you know, a certain kind of culture police, which is what they were. Anyway, this then led to Leighton accusing me of having called him a racist because I had said Leighton must be thinking, who's this guy comes from England and starts telling us what to think or something. So he did the classic um, toxic thing of accusing you of saying something that you didn't say, then telling you to apologize for it. Um, And that didn't work. And then I suddenly thought, my God, who are these people? This was a party I hadn't, in fact, belonged to for several years, too. So that was that debate. Um, Do I want to revisit it? Um, Possibly, yes. I sometimes think um, maybe it's time we look back on it. But then I... I look at the Twitter debates about colonialism and they haven't changed no. one iota not one. I think so the f- what's the point? But I think know? the
0: fundamental thing that you pointed out in those debates, I think Jane Aaron said, is, about, is the voice of old Labour refusing to give up or f- refusing to, there's a profoundly reactionary viewpoint and yes. as you said. It's J- Jane's, Jane's input
1: was also very good of course. But
0: it's like the fact that you know, as you said, in Scotland, Ireland, all over the world, in fact going back to even when Michael Hector wrote Internal Colonial in 1975, there was sophisticated responses across the world because it's based on the Franks, based on Emmanuel Wallerstein, it's based on um, a whole host of incredible, brilliant minds. But lo and behold, when it comes to Wales, all of a sudden uh, the vested interest will shut it down, and say you can't talk about that, this is rubbish, and, and do these false, like, gotchas about, oh, we participate in the empire, therefore it's not appropriate. Whereas yeah. everyone else in the world is like, well, it's actually the perfect theoretical framework for studying a liminal country which doesn't fit into yeah. either side. It's <clears throat> actually perfect, but as you said, there's there are power relations at play which mean that you have to stop certain. And as you said, what Dice Smith was trying to do was to stop the entire intellectual perspective yeah. from flourishing because that would then call into question the legitimacy of the British state, the Labour Party, and all the things that they sort of see as absolutely sacrosanct. And in particular, their role as being sort of these gatekeepers of the Welsh national culture.
1: That's right, that's right. And. It, it was an it was a fear of intellectual pluralism rather necessarily than the fact that I disagreed with them that set me off and still does. The other thing is that, you know, if you read the great post-colonial theorists like Fanon, um, they will tell you exactly about how the colonized yeah, it's the whole will become it. it's the whole complicit and sucked into. <laughs> and these people mm. haven't read it. That was the thing. Not only that they don't want to read it because their intellectual outlook depends upon not reading it. So that frustrated me.
0: Well, I have, I have spoken to people who are convinced that certain Labour uh, academics who got involved in this debate have, have, as you said, have not read even Michael Hector in General yeah. colonialism, let alone Fanon, uh, Frank Wallerstein, you know, all uh, Barber, or all these post theorists. They haven't read it. They won't, as you said, they won't read it. And I don't know, it's just, I mean, what, what was fascinating to me about the Labour tradition is that on the British level, like Tom Nairn and Perry Anderson and stuff, and Miliband have always said this: it's like profound anti-intellectualism amongst people who are considered to be intellectuals. But in Wales, it's almost it's almost been worn as a badge of honour that you could that you could be a professor or, or of English literature and as not yourself and take, person, not not ta- and take pride in not And take pride in not having read something and dismissing it out of hand the ar the arrogance yeah. of that is it, and, and the self interest behind it is. It makes my head spin how, how outrageous it is to just say, no, actually, there's this huge field across the world that has been you know uh, built by br- brilliant, not just brilliant scholars, like Edward said, and things like that, but activists, people who've been active in anti-colonial struggles. And they turn around and say, I'm not even going to bother reading that, mate, because I'm from the valleys, and m- this is my world, and, and I know what's right, and you well, don't know what's right. don't need your frosty yeah yeah, yeah, basically, we don't need, we don't need your fancy... Uh, fancy theories and come coming,
1: here yeah. with your funny theories but okay. on the other hand I mean the reason for that is also the class politics in political debate has been hollowed out to anti-intellectualism and that was what I objected to in Dyer's Dyer article it was the and in fact I remember one of the lines says you know and I'm not going to attempt the accent but he says Go and here I am and <laughs> no, no. <clears throat> um, here I am reading that all this time I've been colonized. I didn't know that. you know, you know it's this kind of, well, sort of well, meta, well. that's right, it's it's this meta version of good sense um, being used to essentially strangle a potentially rich intellectual argument. And I thought, have I really have I really come here to find that this is the level of debate? It isn't, of course, because I found many fantastic debates after that, but not after I had essentially had these, um, you know, a one-man culture quangu try to shut me down. And the other accusation, which I thought was what was most absurd, was that they objected to the fact that I had also read Alf Williams and Raymond Williams and perhaps extracted from those writers something other than what they had extracted. And I remember Leighton Andrews says, In his article, you know, it's absolutely clear that Gwyneth Williams never uses the term colonialism or comments. He bloody does, and I pointed out, I think, in my reply, which page Gwyneth Gwyneth Williams had used that exact c-word. And you think, have these people even read this stuff?
0: Well, no, because it's it. Well, if they, it's just it'll be a selected passage. While we're on a roll, yeah, yeah a, that's a, role, a yeah. But while we're on a roll attacking Welsh Labour people, mean you have had an interesting discussion <laughs> about this.
1: That's not but, the ex- the but, only reason <laughs> I came here, by the way. No,
0: it's not. But we we share an interest in. It. I mean, I, I'm. I think it's it's fascinating when you have people, people who come in and, and aren't afraid to, stir the hornet's or speak truth to what I see as the establishment in Wales, um, because it. You know, Kieran and I, are both junior academics. You know, both of us uh, have struggled unemployed. to get. i you know, you know, getting in, in ahead in academia in Wales is is almost impossible unless I think you are prepared to play a certain game. It's so small, you you know, you can't afford to piss the wrong people off and whatever. So it's always interesting to see people come in and go. You know, I don't really give a shit about your sensibilities and, and sort of going to town on people. Um, but one of the, um, we ch- we chatted on Twitter about this. Um, one of the things that sort of sums up. Wales and Welsh politics and Welsh Labour for me is a sort of this like posthumous like beatification of Roderick Morgan as one of the most incredible. The
1: great unscrutinized. And,
0: and there's like this, there, I mean, there's literally like oil paintings of him in the pierhead building, and things like this. And and for me, it's just like if you had to sum up what's wrong with Wales, I mean, Mark Drakeford wrote this like awful, well, it's just a load of shit, this article in Tribune the other week. And it was like, I come from this like Roderick Morgan tradition. And I was like, well, that says it all. And if you, you know, because Roderick Morgan was the master of like empty hollow rhetoric without anything actually sub- of substance behind it. And um, I believe you said you sort of started trying to talk to people about it. And it was like, no, this is verboten. No, like don't, don't speak ill of Rodri Morgan. And I just find it that that for me is another sort of example of, I mean, the guy celebrated on the steps of the, of the assembly when he won a private military contract to set up a private, like a Blackwater style private training contract. In South Wales, at the height of the Iraq War, now regardless of the fact that, you know, you know he support, he refused, you know, this is a man who refused to condemn the war in Iraq, um, which is you know killed over nearly a million people, has led to the, and absolute- also
1: also remember, um, Welsh Labour AMs were not allowed to comment on it. Mm, yeah, that was an edict.
0: Yeah, whipped and um and, you know and then and also at the time, I'm sure people will know this. Listen to our militarism pod, but um, you know Wales had the second highest percentage. Of combat deaths worldwide, you know, during the Iraq War, so there were lads from, and Swansea, North Wales. People were just getting, you know, it was all these working class Welsh soldiers were, getting killed in Iraq, and not, not to mention the huge amounts of Iraqi civilians and kids and women who were getting like incinerated and butchered over there. And Roger Morgan, his greatest triumph is, like celebrating this private military train facility for people who are going to go over to Iraq and, and yet
3: but that's it though isn't it for them it's just like oh look at us we've been Wales on the map Well like, we
0: bought jobs but it's just the fact that for me that is one of the most repellent things as ever like okay we've won a, and by the way that was a cross party initiative in Westminster so Plaid are wouldn't no, be the at all my, um, you can
3: imagine Wales online gleefully right now well, about like, some blackwater but, but it's the fact that he's Dude, seen he us don't.
0: beyond reproach somehow now and he's like this uh, rumpled Roger Morgan like you know, and he's compared to Blair he was friends with Tony Blair do you know what I mean? Blair just didn't like him because he went over to his house and his, he had dishes stacked up and his house was untidy. Like you, like rhetorically and aesthetically, he was very. Diff- he was like the opposite of Tony Blair. But he was a career politician. He wasn't um, old, you know, old Labour. He, just because he wrote the Clear Red Water speech, if you read Kerry Evans, you know, there's now there's like a, a proper thinker. Kerry Evans's resignation letter from the Welsh Labour Party around two thousand and two, two thousand and three, um, when Roger yeah. Morgan was at the helm, and he's moaning about how Roger Morgan's Welsh Labour have taken this horrifically right-wing turn, you know, how partisan they are, attack implied for supporting things like free tuition fees and all that. Um, and yeah, he's gone down into,
1: yes. Well, the, the tuition fees thing, but also it was on, it was on his watch. I think that the really vicious anti-Welsh stuff Mm. that was, that was the last straw for me because I, I, I found him very charming, very easy to deal with in my, in my small exchanges with him. Um, but I just couldn't, well, it was to, partly to do with the Iraq war, partly to do with the fact that it was Welsh Labour's going along with that dreadful man at the Welsh Mirror, Paul, Paul Starling. Starling, who I'm happy to, I'm proud to say, uh, threatened me with legal action um, after after I wrote articles about Welsh Labour's complicity in the, in the Welsh Mirror's viciously anti-Welsh campaign which arguably won them the election, with which Rodri Morgan was totally complicit in, really. I did write to Rodri complaining about it, and he very kindly said um, that he was going to show my letter to some people, and I thought that he was going to do something about it or talk to some people. And I suspect he did, because I think he probably found things like that personally painful as well as insulting, but it never stopped. Um, And that was when I became friendly with Paul Flynn, who I saw quite a lot of when I lived down in Cardiff and who gave me a lot of moral support. Precisely when I was being threatened with legal action by Paul Starling for those Planet articles, where I basically showed that those articles were essentially racist, anti-Welsh, deceitful. But the Labour Party needed that and they wanted that because they thought that was how they were going to win by using welsh in their version of the culture war and that was the point of no return for me in terms of welsh labor if i still lived in england if i'd stayed in oxford i'd still be a member of the labor party which for me indisputably has been the single greatest force for good in the history of british politics but i deliberately use the past tense here maybe the past and future tense if corbyn gets in but um that vision for me explicitly does not include Welsh labour.
0: No, we I would certainly agree with, I would certainly agree with that. Um, so we've it's a pretty nice uh, eviscerating and uh, t- some this and take which I can't uh satisfied by that. And I'm pretty pretty happy. <laughs> you got what you want Well I'm it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, have a cigarette. But, it's, but I mean yeah, but you get off. I mean it's it's I cannot describe how obviously a, a similar journey in, in that I've grown up sort of thinking labour with the good guys, and it's a it's a pretty traumatic experience when you sort of gradually realise that the people you think are, are the good guys turn out to be actually really nasty and vicious, and and as you said, borderline racist and things like that. And and um, I had that when I you know went to uni and things like that. But I mean, for me, when I was in university, I, I mean my biggest thing I I I hate hypocrites. I don't like people who are uh, hypocrites or judgmental or whatever. But I mean, it's the fact that you have these people um, who are in positions of power in Wales, in cultural organisations, in academia, and who are who base their life basically pretending to be sort of um, oppressed, essentially, um, you know, c- accusing other people of being like crackac cultural elitist, whilst you know, in the case of Dai Smith, being first professor and then chairman of the the Wales Arts yeah. Council, or whatever, and then, and then, but, but only in Wales could someone go along and and, and keep saying, "Oh, well, I am." You know, uh, it's the it's the nationalists who control Wales, it's the, yeah. it's it's and you know, it's this Krakak who live in like Pont Canna and stuff and I'm like, mate, you're literally earning like a hundred dollars grand a year in these different positions, giving speeches. You're like the director of BBC like I think he was a programme editor on BBC Wales. You don't get to tell people who an elite is. Um and for someone like me who's I mean, I've never I, I like to think I've never really had any luck in in the job market despite working my arse off, these people don't know they've been born and and they view, you know when you look at like the trajectory of Owen Smith or who, who who's another one who's happy to deploy these tropes about like the the crack hack and things like that was having everything sort of handed to him um it's always it's i find it incredibly pernicious and frustrating the fact that people don't stick their head above the parapet and sort of point out that the emperor's not wearing any clothes in I, yeah i think part um, of the
1: problem here as well is that civil society is essentially Network of political appointees. Of course, it is, and that's the other reason things can get really stagnant and mm. claggy in in Welsh life. It, it's not ju- if it was just the politicians that would be fine. You know, you could take them on, tell them to fuck off, not vote for them. Um, but it's not. It's it's this whole kind of percolating system of of place people, place men and place women, and, and that can be really stultifying, far more in a way than just having people that you dislike or disrespect in charge that's that's kind of normal that's happening everywhere
0: yeah but when they're absolutely everywhere and and kieran and i have spoken about the how academia is gradually becoming integrated into the sort of co-opted by the welsh government yes yes. cheney's written an article about the third sector in wales and how charities are sort of led by political appointees who won't speak truth to power and yeah yeah all that um is it it makes for this incredibly (laughs) stifling sort of intellectual environment um, and that's why i've always been Yes. Your work was interesting. On
1: the positive side, you know, the, it, it's the smallness and locatability of Wales that causes a lot of these problems. But on the positive side, it could be that same smallness and smaller scale that provides a counterbalance and a way out and an alternative. Because the other thing we have to remember is that the state of politics and in England, the state of politics and civil society in England is pretty disastrous as well. You know, we're constantly told in Wales that the Welsh NHS is underperforming, the Conservatives use it to attack Labour, um, and so on. But it's exactly the same in England. It's worse in some parts of England. But... um, somehow the size of the place kind of absorbs these kind of salient details, whereas with us it doesn't. So we mustn't beat ourselves up too much about it either. My institution in Oxford is um, often very reactionary and politically scared.
0: Moving on to your, your literary work, your novels, to what extent, well, Kieran can Kieran, I'm looking at because he's certainly there. If you start the sentence, and yeah, finishes. But what, to, good, like, to what, I mean, to what extent? I mean, I mean, I, we've noticed that you you write about um, places that are not maybe particularly, not, obviously not glamorous, but you know, places you wouldn't necessarily think about, like Cluj uh, in Romania or the or Belgium and places like that. Um, has your is there any crossover between your your novels and your poetry and, and your sort of political thought or? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, completely, completely. Um <clears throat> where would I start? My first novel was about I I see the the three I see my first novel, my memoir, and my second novel as thinly veiled and quite exaggerated autobiographies. The first novel is about someone who goes to live in Romania at the end of the Ceaușescu period. The reason for that, the reason I wrote that was that I was I was there, you know, up until a few months before the re- revolution. And when we lived there, we didn't see the revolution coming. However clever we are, how much we read, how much we look at stuff, somehow we can't see history capital H. You know, it's it's not some big mass there that you mm. see coming. It's it's something kind of hidden and disparate, and then suddenly it goes. Pow! And I was prompted to write that. I wanted. I knew I wanted to write it. Because it was a novel about politics and about corruption, which fascinates me. Corruption, decay, decadence, dying systems, falling systems, absolutely fascinates me. Um, which is perhaps why I'm so interested in Welsh politics <laughs> <laughs> um, But uh, uh, I kind of, yeah, so... Arbitrary power. <laughs> that's right, arbitrary power sort of held nepotism, on to... Nepotism, uh... all of that. Rot, rot. I mean remember as well in my academic life I had been writing about French decadence and this idea of systems becoming most themselves just at the moment when they're about to collapse they reach their apogee you know just as they fall that's their peak not not the bit where they're not the bit where the empire is strong and all this it's like the Roman Empire the peak of the Roman Empire is just as it's about to decline the 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 cusp as it falls and the drop, that's the peak. and I, um, So I wrote about that and then I decided to pay my dues to my Belgian childhood and my Belgian family. So I wrote the second book, which was a book of love, but also in its way quite political. And the new book, Throw Me to the Wolves, is based on the hounding of Chris Jeffries, the school teacher in Bristol, in Clifton College, where I was sent because my father worked for the British Council, so we had our fees paid and I was sent to this English boarding school at the age of nine where I met the kind of sociopaths who now run our country I met them all you know the dead-eyed bluffer the guy who uses long words and things it'll make him interesting the one who's basically planning to take over the country but isn't fully clear why he just wants power um, all of these things I met them all you know but also the losers you know the people that what sort of system chews up the bullied, the self harming, and I started writing a novel about that because I wanted to get a lot of my anger and indignation out. Um, and so that's it's now come out, and uh, sadly, I'm just as angry as indignant <laughs> as I was when I started. But I thought it would be a way of lancing the boil, but it isn't. So, yes, everything connects up. Because I'm interested in systems and in details and how details tell you about the whole.
0: Before I forget, you wrote, You said your first novel as an academic was a thinly veiled autobiography. And then um, we were cracking up about Raymond Williams' very thinly, thinly is that, veiled autobiography. Is that just what academics do? They just write, what's like they just go. What's, uh, like, what's well, write about themselves, <laughs> yeah. Let's call Patrick Well, M. Raymond Williams is an
1: interesting person, isn't he? Because huh, he seems to lend himself to saying a number of things. You know, like for example, I'm sure Die Smith they call him Die, but maybe he doesn't want to be on first names terms with first name terms with me. Is
3: it Die as in D A I no, not at all. I'm
1: sure Die um, wouldn't want to have this debate with me, but I've always thought that um, you know that there's a certain analysis of this kind of the autobiography, that the idea of returning home but is it really a return? You're returning, but home isn't what it was and stuff. That seems to me um, in Raymond Williams and some of the things that someone like a, a, a critic like Di Smith has responded to, incredibly rich. You can do incredibly rich things with those. And yet somehow he never did. <laughs> die. I mean, you know, nothing nothing came from that um, that could be a, an interesting form of... Uh, Criticism, an an interesting path for for criticism in Welsh writing in English. And I think that's finally starting to happen now in the way people are writing about Raymond Williams. Going back to your question, thinly veiled autobiographies. um, Yeah, maybe. Maybe academics um, realise that uh, being academics has kind of stultified their real life. So they need to go and ransack their own (laughs) memories for some plot. That is interesting,
0: though, the idea that academics, you know, have potentially more limited life experiences than I don't know Bukowski or someone like that. Yes,
1: and well, I disagree. Actually, I think uh, Bukowski's ex- life experiences are incredibly banal and monotonous. <laughs> um, it's only people like us who don't Bukowski. Yes. No, God, I'd. Re- we just wrote a book about
3: being a postman? But didn't he'd he'd be yeah, uh, about yeah. 150 times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: no, i I don't um no, i don't I don't rate Bukowski. I do rate Raymond Williams. I think I responded in Raymond Williams to a kind of sadness that you think you're the one who's changed, but actually the place has changed, and then you stop knowing really what has changed. the idea of the impossibility of returning home, even though everyone is somehow still there, you know the parents, the school, mm. the train station, all of that. And that's how I feel about Bouillon. So yes. Mm um
0: kind of like nothing gold can stay sort of thing it's well everything's of, is uh, transient isn't it yeah and, everything's and like we're always transient. longing for this like yeah miss miss like
3: a, a miss memory of what it was like it's more of a yeah a, a feeling than that's a, right yeah.
1: and, and that makes me melancholy it gives me a slightly sort of sour taste of i got
3: this uh longing memory of my being in my grandparents house but it's just been so corrupted by me thinking about it like, yes this is one point of, yeah like, it's, it's it's weird for me like being in the in Dan's house now because it's, it's built the same way as his grandparents' house, so it's almost like being in like a dream of it. Anyway, was it but the same booze at the house Yeah, yeah. And my grand <laughs> my grandfather <laughs> was yeah. here as well, which is weird. <laughs> and yes. Dan looks a bit like me, but um, no, just like I like, keep remembering this thing, but to the point of like it's it's not the original memory at all. Yeah, so yeah. I just like misremembered it so much. Like
1: I wanted to recapture my extremely happy childhood. When I was in a different country, I spoke a different language and I was with different people who nonetheless are still there, most of them, the ones who aren't dead. Um, And I felt that it suddenly became important. It became important because I have my own children and my own children are not like me. They have no doubt about where they're from, no doubt about their identity. They're not going to be sent age nine to an English boarding school, put on a plane for an eight hour flight and then met by a stranger. Right, well, if they keep misbehaving. The um, although I do use that as a as a possible threat. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I wanted them to know, really, what it had been like to live this life that was, in retrospect, charmed and very happy. That's all.
0: So would you, I mean, you, you, you're living in Wales. The majority of your novels are, are not set in Wales. What interaction do you have with, like, the how would you class yourself and because uh, i mean there's apparently there's a debate about this is isn't there about who, who is a welsh writer in english and and, and all this well, and and yeah, what it means to be i welsh think those writer in english and, yeah you
2: know. there there the were once debates about those sorts of things i'd like to think we've moved on a bit from the oh, i would find that very new <laughs> 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 These debates but, I, but i mean that is part of the problem i think is that you know we're talking about the, the problem of a living in a society with a really shriveled public sphere and a very shriveled cultural sphere yeah, shriveled is the word yeah and, and yeah. all the stagnant ideas that that don't really go anywhere in that kind of context so i, I was going to ask really a connected question which is sort of you know what's what's your being a okay let's say if we're talking about the insider outside and that's you know working in oxford living a kind of a Peripatetic life in some ways. What's your perspective on the Welsh cultural sphere right now? and you know
1: I, I think it's, I think it's actually pretty exciting. Um, I, I, I enjoy, for example, I'm not going to name any names, but I think it's a really good time for Welsh uh, prose and poetry in English. I think that the Welsh language literature sphere is really interesting and also on the music front as well. Um, a podcast
3: friend as well. Is okay, just a a yeah, it's just a pioneer. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, these new
1: podcast things are just the one really is really good. Off. Off. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> so yeah. No, I, <clears throat> I find it hugely enabling. Now, <clears throat> if you were to ask me whether I'm a Welsh writer, I, I have thought about this because, of course, I keep getting asked, um, and. We'll I haven't. Tonight, I, haven't um, <laughs> I haven't. I haven't had a, an answer until now, and, and I, I didn't prepare an answer, but I thought about it because I wanted to say it, even if I wasn't asked. It occurs to me that all of the writing that I've done as a creative writer has happened since I came to Wales. I started late in poetry, um, and I started very late in fiction. My first book of poems came out in two thousand and four, um, when we lived in Cardiff. <clears throat> and
3: Is that the title of the book? Yeah, yeah. Well, it sort of is. <laughs> it's
1: actually called The Canals of Mars, but it's a book about where I found Is that
3: Lovell? Is that his name? Canals Yes, of Perci- Percival yeah, Lowell. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So the title poem is about Percival Lowell and those amazing canals of Mars. That Turned out to be because, Ants. Yes, sadly, (laughs) but um, we can talk about Percival Lowell actually if you like, but um, it was when I was learning Welsh and it made me go back over my slightly repressed Belgian childhood and think again of what I had lost but also gained in no longer being Belgian and no longer speaking French um, as, as my predominant tongue thinking in French often, but expressing myself in English and learning Welsh made me reconnect with that. And so all the poems in that are about Belgium. Now, they're Belgian poems, but they wouldn't have been written if I hadn't written them in a Welsh context, that is to say, in a strange sort of bilingual context. Um, And I suddenly became fascinated by things that I had never been fascinated by before. Road signs in two languages, which is, of course, how I grew up. But growing up as a Walloon speaking French, you uh, you blank out the, the Dutch underneath, or above. so you don't crash the car. <laughs> that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's right, that's right because the apparently towns, they're yeah. really yeah, yeah. dangerous, those <laughs> bilingual road signs. Um, and suddenly I felt that my contact with Welsh, with um, Angharad, with her family, her people, and this country. Um, And also English speaking Wales had suddenly allowed me to become a writer or they had made me see the world in a way that meant that I could write. And I suddenly started doing things that I'd never really done before, writing poems. So I remember thinking about how neat it was that um, calon and canol um, in Welsh were just inverted words, meaning centre and heart. Um, You know, calon, heart canal center a canal that you see every day a canal of dre and so on and i thought I can look at these words and maybe write poems about that strange doubleness where, where things look different but in some weird way the heart and the center are also the same in a way um cumul and colum not cloud I, so i did all of that and it gave me a taste for writing poetry that i hadn't really had before you know i'd been trying to write poems Um, But I hadn't found my seam, so that was my seam. Um, And then my second book of poems was also a kind of reckoning with childhood in Belgium. Um, Other People's Countries was absolutely that, it began as a series of stories about my childhood for my children. My children were ravenous for stories about my time in English boarding school and my time in Belgium. I told them stories, often they were true. Um, and then I had to invent stories because I ran out of true ones because the children were insatiable. They wanted more stories, gay story, dad, from when you were a child. So I, I would do those. And then I thought, I'm going to write these things up in that strange double way. Did it happen? Did it not? Am I a Welsh writer? I don't think I Well, I, I think I'm a Welsh writer, but I'm not Welsh. No, um, I'm not someone who needs to know where they come from in order to feel perfectly happy with what they are. Um, I'm, I'm not Welsh. I'm totally dedicated to this country where I will stay and which I love. And I'm delighted that my children will answer straight away, we're Welsh, but it's not massively important to me. Why should it be? I've had everything I wanted from it, from happiness to a welcome. Even the people who basically hate me at some level, um, understand that I'm here to stay. So, um, no, I'm not Welsh, but I am a Welsh writer. That's possible, isn't it?
2: I think, well, it has to be. And I'm a
1: writer because I came here. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. If I'd stayed in Oxford, I'd be writing, you know, I don't know, metafiction or stuff about people, you know, um, disorientated by the fact that, Sourdough bread has gone up, or something like that. Um, well,
2: yeah, I was going to kind of ask what I mean coming to Wales and the, the you know the personal experience of coming up against another language and, and yeah. duality and and all those other things. But um, how about your reading of Welsh writers and the, the sort of heritage, if you like, of Welsh writing in English language and obviously in Welsh? I mean, how much do you think that's fed into your creativity? Or,
1: oh, completely. Um, Completely, I was very influenced when I arrived in Wales by my friendships with and also my attentive reading of Nigel Jenkins and Robert Minhinnick. Um
0: We want to get Rob on the podcast
1: as well. Of course, yes, yes, he'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, you will find that he will hold back even less than I. Um, also Gwyneth Lewis... Um, in the early 2000s, reading her was incredibly liberating um, in terms of sort of not just what bilingual writing might be, but what a bilingual consciousness might do with writing. Um, finding Lynette Roberts, with whom I must at some level have felt some kind of affinity, you know, the kind of insider who isn't an insider, you know, the outsider's insider or the insider's outsider or whatever. Um, I was welcomed and encouraged and helped by Wynne thomas but then again who wasn't um and also i had you know i had the right kind of friends and i'm happy to say the right kind of enemies
0: i'm fascinated for a country that is uh sort of wears its like working classness historically on its like sleeve what i'm asking is i mean we can say that the welsh scene is healthy do you still think it is it as is it bougie in Wales? Is it you know like is there in is there not um, a parallel between the Welsh literary scene and and the and the Oxford literary scene? If you say there's going to be like a difference in in maybe the topic or what you write about, but are they not? <laughs> yeah, both, that's both a, that's a good same... question.
1: Um, I haven't really thought about it. Maybe because I don't want to, because I might reach the kind of conclusion <laughs> I don't want to reach. Um, I find myself at the aesthetic level very satisfied with mm. a lot of. Uh, writing that comes from Wales in the English language. I don't necessarily think to myself, this could only have come from Wales. Okay. That's true. Yeah. But that's a debate we've been having since the 40s. And, um, you know, we've had it since Kyedric Rees was, you know, with Wales magazine and things. What well, uh, I think the problem is, if we get too hung up on that question, then we risk killing off the sort of creativity of it. Um, I'm I'm I don't know about that. I mean, I do think that there are certain kinds. Okay, so you know, um, I can admire a certain poet, let's say, um, while at the same time thinking that this poetry could just as easily have come from Hereford uh, or Hastings as it could from. Somewhere in South Wales or somewhere in Mid Wales or whatever. Um, but maybe it's a big ask for for us to expect literature to do for us the things that our own political entity is not doing is not doing for itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, to an extent it could potentially stifle creativity or what have you I don't know if we'll keep that in because I think my question is a bit shite to be honest
1: but um no no we'll, I, but I, I know you what you're saying question, yeah. we'll, I know I know what you're saying I mean I you know for instance um, a poet like Owen Shears that's that's a prime example of how you take all of the stuff that makes it a Welsh poem landscape slight sense of loss but no anger that's important mm. um, And then you deliver it as a poem that is going to get studied at GCSE as a Welsh poem. Um,
0: I'm sure you've got something to say about that, Kieran.
2: However. I'm just nodding in agreement. Yeah. uh,
1: um, However, you know, what it is, is essentially R.S. Thomas, but defanged, you know, um, without the anger, without the... Yeah, that is interesting. something like John Ormond, however, is a very good poet for exactly this that we're talking about as you know which is that he manages to write poems which fully understand their aesthetic form and the necessity of their aesthetic form because he is an absolute craftsman but at every point almost almost at the level of second nature i'm not even sure he knows that he's doing it it is a poem that is us he's writing poems that ask questions about the relationship of craft to material to um, to class to origins um, and to some extent to um, nation and yet for years until now I think <laughs> uh, Ormond has been thought of as just a guy who wrote really nicely turned poems, you know, but he's more than that, and that is I think a perfect fusion of the social with the aesthetic. Yeah, Did this, he do it deliberately? I don't know. What do you think?
2: I don't know. Yeah, oh, and I think yeah, it was more deliberate than he would have liked to have thought. Right. If you know what I mean. Yeah. I think he was... Um, yeah, but it's yeah, informed yeah, he, by he was a social. These isn't things, I think, he was a socialist, yeah, and it was, you know, all of his work, I think, came from stemmed from that um, yeah. conviction ultimately, and a sense, of,
1: a sense of what we owe to public language, even when we are yeah. ro- writing our most aesthetic poem about a beautiful swan, we owe something to public language. Too. Yeah,
2: but, but he understood the materiality of language as well, and the materiality the way that we disseminate culture you know he worked for the bbc yes <laughs> and yes, much of, of his course. work was producing documentaries about welsh culture and finding ways to frame it in ways that could would make culture accessible but also um contribute in a way to i would say you know welsh consciousness uh, you know i do think yeah. that his films were doing that i think his poetry yes, does that to an right. extent as well but that comes down to a question of how you know you talk about people like lynette but basically being forgotten. And that's the importance of having healthy, critical institutions yes. and material institutions and an education system that, that disseminates this stuff and teaches people and, and builds an awareness that there is a cultural heritage here and that there are people who have been having these arguments, post-colonial, post-colonial theory is a you know, perfect example, been having these arguments for decades. But the, you know rather than keep rehearsing the same old tropes, Maybe there's, you know, a way we can we can move beyond and, and develop these ideas, you know?
1: Yeah, I yeah, I agree.
0: We're gonna move we'll move into the what's the what's the posture for the end the new one? No, what's, we're beginning our descent. Right, beginning <laughs> our descent. <Boom>. <laughs> descent. So uh, Patrick, you've been you are involved in, in politics and um you were recently applied I was the candidate for the European I was indeed. I was third on the list. Third on the list.
1: Of so, how many? Four. <laughs> oh, so, oh, oh, so thanks. You, so, so you were in the
0: cut. So you did you make the cut as a play candidate or? I did. Oh, I did. So I was. I was third on the list. Oh, I go.
1: didn't pose any major threat to the day job. But right. I would have done it with huge pride and a sense of excitement.
0: Are you still actively involved? Are you going to be looking at standing um, in the future, or how's it all going? Yeah,
1: I realise that I, I am still committed to Plaid, and I will. I will stand if I'm asked. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's pretty funny that given our big chat earlier about you must be a nationalist. <laughs> if you sort of say certain things, that was the accusation. And now you've. It's yes. like you've reve- finally revealed yourself to be a vile nationalist. In the, in the, in the, like,
1: yeah, yeah. The, the, well, I. You you've know, taken I, your
3: final I, form,
0: like... I, I'm a European. I knew it! <laughs> I'm, I'm a. Euro- Euro- uh, i
1: am <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, I knew he was going to do it. Those pesky kids. Yeah. Um, well, I am. I don't know if you. Mi- If you mean that I think Wales should run its own affairs and that I consider myself a European and I would like to see the country that I live in as a part of Europe, then yeah, I'm a nationalist. I'll never forget when I was about 12 listening to the radio in England and they were calling, um, they were talking about Egypt and conflict between the Egyptian forces and the British. And they were calling the Egyptians nationalists, and I remember thinking, God, but, but you just mean Egyptians in Egypt. So maybe I am a national nationalist. If you mean a Welsh person in Wales who thinks Wales should run its own affairs, yeah, totally.
0: We're going to do a, an episode on Michael Billig, aren't we, on nationalism yeah. soon? Because we're just sort of adamant that everyone needs, <laughs> everyone yeah. needs to read it, so we don't have these uh, the nationalist tropes sp- being thrown. I think, at yeah, else. I suppose
1: I've never understood why a Welsh person who. Thinks that, or, or like me, uh, a European, an Anglo-Belgian who lives in Wales and who thinks that Wales should run its own affairs as a nationalist, whereas a Welsh person who thinks England should run Welsh affairs isn't called an English nationalist. Mm. It seems quite obvious that you're being run by two English nationalist parties. Let's be clear, that's what they are, isn't it?
0: Well, how would you? I mean. I don't know if this will, yeah, this will go out before the election, won't it? So how do you see things going at the moment for, for Plyde? Because obviously there's been a... For
1: plight specifically. I,
0: or in general. Yeah. What's your prognosis for the for Wales, I, for the UK?
1: I think that... I, th- I, I very much hope that the Conservatives don't win. I think that's absolutely clear. Um, it seems absolutely clear to me that the Conservative Party as it is currently constituted is basically a, a, a barbaric regime and it's being allowed by our institutions, that is the BBC and to some extent actually the Labour Party, to do what it does with absolute impunity. Um, so I desperately don't want them to win. Do I think that Wales can go on having a choice between the Tories and Labour indefinitely and still exist. No, I absolutely don't. And that's why, however disgusted I am by the Conservatives, um, I I still don't think that um, binary politics, even if Labour win, which they won't, um, is the solution for this country. Although um, I would, of course, like to see Corbyn in power in London. Absolutely. Yeah. But not here in Wales. I, I think the Labour Party is shot its bolt it's also not it's also actually a kind of hidey hole for a large number of unapologetic brexiteering blairite or post blairite politicians the idea that of the clear red water to go back to that um existing in wales is it, totally um totally false
0: well it's been exposed now sort of uh what 18 well, 17 odd years after that speech for the for the fallacy that it always was absolutely right? yeah and when you have someone who actually introduces so well moderate social democratic policies like Corbyn does you can hold them up like a, a sheet The English Labour policies at the one, on the one hand and Welsh Labour's record and what they advocate and you can do it there's a huge diff- well there is clear red War, but it's, yeah. it's the other way it's, that's
1: right that's right and that's but you see what, what's happening at the moment is that Labour's Corbyn's policies if you look at them on the spectrum of European social democratic politics they're not extreme at all they're in pretty much in the middle. Um, And yet we have created, and Labour has allowed to be created too, either through Blairism or through absolutely hopeless campaigning under Corbyn. I mean, a total shitshow of a way of running a campaign. Um, They've allowed to be created a system where even the most moderate pieces of social democratic advance are treated as if they were extreme, communist. You know, Stalinist, those are the words mm. that are being uh, bandied about, including by the BBC, which is complicit in all of this. So, um, no, I, I think it's really, really dire. How do I think Plaid will do? Well, I'd like Plaid to win the maximum number of seats. I'd like, ideally, Plaid to win all of the seats. And then you might actually get Westminster paying attention. That This is what's happened in Scotland, isn't it? Scotland mm. has made itself central to... Debates about what Britain is and what Britain can be because it turned away from both Labour and the Conservatives. That's the only way you scare them, by taking their seats. And that's why I'm not um, an advocate of thinking, as we always end up doing in Wales every general election, um, any vote for Plaid is a vote for the Tories. At the moment, it's a vote for the Tories anyway, I'm afraid.
0: But there is, I mean, I think there is at the moment a strong argument that the Plaid pact with Joe Swinson... Who, let's be honest. I mean, there's absolutely no chance she's going to support a Labour government. She, a minority Labour government. She, I think, would, if push came to shove. I think someone was even on the news the other day and said we would sort of look to work with uh, a Conservative government under Boris and try to get an- another referendum. Yeah. So in a way, I mean, much as I've always opposed that <laughs> narrative that a vote for Plaid is a vote for the Tories, this is probably, I would say, the first election where, in a roundabout way, that is, but is is potentially potentially true because. You know they're going to potentially make Joe Swinson the kingmaker, who is in turn going to turn around and potentially shaft Corbyn and, and therefore the rest of the country with it. So there's, it's uh, getting into bed with the Lib Dems is a controversial uh, and uh, risky strategy to say the least.
1: I, I agree with that, and I also think that it's based on a misprision that uh, a vote for Lib Dem in a place where the lib dems aren't seating will automatically uh, aren't challenging will automatically go to plaid people don't do the soft voter does not do what the party tells them to do so i'm not sure that it will necessarily transfer into votes on the other hand i can see why plaid did it i you know for years i've been advocating tactical voting um And then finally, when my party goes for it and says, yes, let's do it, I suddenly am ambiguous about it. So I I would support Plaid's decision to do that. My worry is that um, you can't trust the Lib Dems. When I was standing in Oxford as a Labour councillor in the mid nineties, the Lib Dems on the ground were the most fearsome because thoroughly dishonest ground campaign that we had ever come across and um i don't think that's necessarily changed on yeah. the other hand i think i think that tactical that pact will work if it stops conservatives getting in the, the problem is that it might also stop labor mm. getting in
0: or it'll get swenson and she's gonna go with the tories anyway so it's, i uh... think it would
1: be extremely difficult for her to do that because for some reason i don't think she will do that
0: but well, we'll see. I'll we come back. A, um, yeah. it was interesting. Interesting that they go with you know the Lib Dem pact I mean, I wonder how Mike Parker feels about this, given that
1: oh, the, of course, the, the of Greasy course. Pole
0: was it based on you know <clears> the <throat> Dem's local character assassination of course, yes, him, totally, which really, totally. Which, if you read his book Greasy Pole, is pretty horrific
1: and brutal. And uh, I blurbed it. I said really it good. was a colonoscopy of Welsh politics. <laughs> <laughs>
3: the book itself is really greasy as well, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't really read it for yeah. long. You keep dropping it.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: Patrick, thanks so much for coming on. Thank it's you, been, it's, it's been, been a, a enjoyable
1: real as well as um, entertaining.
0: Good. And um are, are there any shout outs or you'd like to uh, give to people, or in your case, maybe some uh, old arguments you'd like to reignite with? Any more? Have done that? I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, they've been yes. active, they're reactivated for sure. But.
1: I'm always I, I'm I'm the I'm happy to return to some of the old <laughs> debates, if only. I you, Well, basically, in terms of polemic i i am open to doing requests okay that's i'm a good. dj of polemic
0: <laughs> any uh any shout outs or anything you'd like to thank or
1: anything i'd like, like to, to thank the three of you Yeah, I've, I've, really nice, really, I've had a really pleasant afternoon it's been a lot of fun and um i hope we can do it again
0: yeah likewise so thanks thanks so much for coming on patrick guinness buy his new book thrown to the wolves um, buy his old books buy his old books as well buy Throw Me to the Wolves buy it's the
1: th- state of the nation novel nobody asks for which is the most
3: expensive that one okay. buy Throw to the Wolves um, <laughs> buy two copies
0: I would like to give a shout out to my um, dear great aunt uh, Dillis, whose house I'm, I'm living in who recently passed away so an absolute desolation radio soldier amazing woman
3: Kieran shout outs beefs
0: shout outs no beefs for me today
2: um Shout out to my nephew Taron. Taron he's, boy? Yeah, he's getting oh. a bit he's getting older so he's almost one S- 17 today. He's 17. <laughs> <laughs> so shout out to you Taron.
1: Oh, well, I'll give a shout out to my children. It's too late now. <laughs> yeah. I was, was going to ask as well. I mean, like you, earlier, you, do you your children have got covey accents,
0: presumably. They've you know? got covey accents. Yes, yes. They yes. say, say, say cons after everything as well. Oh, the they day. do. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and, and before everything uh. too.
1: Um, yes. So, Oshana <laughs> <laughs> Marie, Diam uh, cons.
3: Shout out to all the good people, the citizens of Icebridge End, where I also volunteer. So, a so, shout out to me as well. You should care, especially isn't me. I do care. <laughs> I do care about seeing and being to care. I don't actually care about the people. (laughs) Right.
0: Thanks so much. Um, In in my professional sort of outro, uh, remember to follow us on Twitter, at daystationwales.com and remember to subscribe to us on Patreon because we're doing our Patreon only Dan's doing his videos that, um, I'll do my uh, special videos for you as well if you want to go be on the paywall um, and keep your eyes peeled because we're hopefully going to be um, well there's going to be a Christmas party there's going to be a Christmas party there will party. be a Christmas oh, party oh fantastic yeah, if, yeah, Kieran around, if
2: Kieran gets
0: uh, around Kieran gets around to her something. I mean, we'll uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> whatever happens
2: we'll find somewhere to drink cans yeah. on yeah. the 21st of Saturday the 21st of December okay, so. be there
0: and be square right peace out torah bye
1: look who's mama let him come out and play today
0: well 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 the former
1: star decides to take once more to the sky shut the fuck up ashley this isn't about you it's about me and him it's always been about me kenny your entire career it would be my honor to end it twice okay look him in the eye kenny in the eye well i'm looking in his eye it's all in the eyes kenny don't blame what you got stone cold yeah stone they are
2: piercing through your ass this is what i'm talking about a fucking showdown
0: Potential Ashley Schaefer BMW buyers, is that what you want? Is that what you want? I don't cry, motherfucker. Let me tell you something. I had a dream about this moment when I was making love to my
2: wife Donna on top of her. Powerful thrust. filling the sultry night air. Heavy breath. My son Gabriel walked in. Little boy. My wife sprung out of bed and said, no, Gabriel, leave me. I said, no, honey, shut your mouth. Let him watch. Let him watch what is being consecrated here. And I want the people to watch what's going to be consecrated here. And I will bring my son down here, and he will watch. He will watch you two battle it here. You two becoming one, OK?